This week, Eddie Robertson joins the show to talk about the big congressional Section 230 hearing, which was a mess. Then Ashley Carmen joins us to talk about the new season of her show, In the Making, all about hardware makers hustling on QVC. So fun. We do a little gadget lightning round, talk about the Razor review, the Wing review, a bunch of other stuff coming up now. If you game, you know settling into your battle station feels enlivening. But gaming on Alienware gear with Intel Core i9 processors, it's more than that. It's a feeling you won't forget. It's where intentional design blurs the line between fantasy and reality. It's where your gear feels like an extension of you. Sometimes it's so immersive, so responsive, you can't tell yourself from your machine. If you're ready to feel one with your gear, start gaming at Alienware.com, featuring the Alienware M15. This episode is brought to you by Yext. Hello, and welcome to the flagship podcast of Section 230 Reform. Yeah, that's what I said. You're going to be in it. I'm Neil Patel. I'm your friend. Dieter Bone is here. I'm Section 230.6. <laughs> that's subclause <laughs> A. You want to be C1 or C2. Oh, okay. Damn. Just going to go really in the weeds. Addie Robertson is here to actually help us talk about 230. Hey there. Uh, I'm C2B. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> These are very deep jokes if you're in the 230 game. Uh, and a little bit later, uh, Ashley Carmen is going to join us. She's got a new show that we're going to talk about selling gadgets. And there's actually a bunch of gadgets to talk about. Um, so that's coming up soon. I want to start where we always start. You know, there's an election next week. This is coming out on Friday, and then on Tuesday, there's an election. Maybe just an important piece of information, if you're thinking about your vote, is that 33 weeks ago, Donald Trump promised a, a website. I think five or six million Google engineers were working on this website. We mm-hmm. can go get tested. Uh, we, we can enter your symptoms and then go through a, a drive-through testing uh, situation in the parking lot of major retailers, then get your results back on this website. That was 33 weeks ago. It's a long time ago. Yeah. There's no, there's no website. It takes a long time to implement a flowchart. Yeah. When there's a flowchart, you got to like, you got to every single line, you got to do something with. I feel like uh, literally entire companies have launched and failed in the time. Like Quibi, like Quibi came and went <laughs> in the time that we've been talking about this, uh, this flowchart. A little bit of news. I, if you, well, we've been telling this joke for a long time. Underneath all that, there was a subsidiary of Alphabet, which is a parent company of Google, called Verily. That was indeed doing a website and doing a testing program in various ways. It was always very small. This whole thing got way overhyped, but it it did occur. And in San Francisco and Oakland, where they verily had partnered with those uh, cities to roll out this website and the testing, uh, didn't work out. Actually, in San Francisco, we have a story. Nicole wrote it. Uh, San Francisco and Oakland have actually phased out their verily COVID-19 testing program because mm-hmm. it wasn't serving enough people in the right way. And Dieter, just before we started, you were saying the reason is because you were, you needed a Google account yeah. to get testing, which is not appropriate. Yeah. Well, it's not appropriate just ethically, but also straight up. But you, if you're listening to the show, it's probably, you probably have a Google account or it's not hard for you to get one, but we need to be able to test people that don't have easy access to a Google account. Like, like they really need to be tested too. And so that needs these testing facilities need to be more universal and they need to not have a weird requirement. I trust that Google wasn't doing anything nefarious with whatever information they were collecting in order to make this thing work. It was just the Google accounts are really secure. And so if Google wants to like keep information secure, the Google account is a really good way to do that. Uh, it's just not appropriate for COVID testing, which should be accessible to everybody. 
Yeah. As with all uh, things with the Trump administration, really just counting over time unva- like reveals an enormous amount of information. So we're going to keep tracking this. It's a to me, it's one. It's one of those things that it's just a microcosm of the entire COVID response so far. Is this website? Uh, just a, another few little COVID updates uh, before we jump into it. The White House considered using Elon Musk in a coronavirus ad campaign. It's just the level. This is the most 2020 sentence uh, that exists. And then Nicole actually wrote a really. We have a package going up this this week through Tuesday where we're all sort of just writing essays about what's at stake in the election. Uh, and Nicole wrote about our ability to fight pandemics and to do public health. It is a very powerful sort of personal anecdote. I just encourage you to go read it. Um, I really, really enjoyed it and was very proud to publish it. Then two more little, I keep calling them the, the sort of second order effects of the pandemic. Uh, Julia noted that every major media company has gone through a dramatic restructure to become streaming first companies. That's Disney. That's AT&T, Time Warner. It's AT&T. Like AT&T <laughs> is like messing with HBO and CNN right now. That's what's happening. Uh, but Disney's done it. Netflix is actually going through a dramatic executive restructure. And they just raised their prices. And Netflix just raised its prices. Now I have to disclose Fox.com as a Netflix show. Many disclosures all the time. Uh, but anyway, Julia wrote a great piece about how the pandemic has accelerated that trend to streaming. Um, and all the companies are restructuring because of it. Check that out. Uh, and then Andy Hawkins has what I thought one of the more... You could see it coming, but it actually happened pieces. Uh, Lime, which is the scooter company. First, they went through a huge downturn because of the pandemic. And now they're on like just meteoric growth. Mm-hmm. And they've actually doubled a bunch uh, of the numbers. And the CEO said to Andy, COVID has gone from a headwind into a tailwind. So because people are not using public transportation, yeah. or they don't want to sit around. They're using scooters. We, that's another trend that's just accelerated. Very interesting piece up on the side. Yeah, and those scooters, they don't go very fast, so you really do want a tailwind. Otherwise, you know, you're just <laughs> trying along. It'd be great if, like, what's the one in, in the in New York City that was, like, Vespas? Revel. Revel. We've got them. we still got them here in the Bay Area. It'd be great if, if but at the end of the pandemic, everyone was just, like, cruising around on a Vespa-looking scooter like it was, like, Italy in the 40s. <laughs> it was just, like, one of those moments. Like, men stopped wearing hats after World War II, but after the pandemic, we all just cruised around on scooters. Okay, that is enough of that. Obviously, the pandemic is first and foremost in our minds. We're covering it a lot. The election is a big deal, but I, the election, to me, is going to segue right into this hearing conversation. So, Addy, there was a Section 230 here. It was actually, the title of the hearing was very direct. It was like, Section 230, did it give you jerks too much power? And then Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai were in front of a Senate committee. How'd it go? Not great. I mean, I feel like if this thing is anytime you see a Section 230 hearing, you can mostly be assured that it's going to be a weird nightmare. But this one was Facebook and Twitter and Google coming out with testimony that actually did open the doors to some pretty interesting questions, especially Facebook, which we're going to talk about. And then the entire rest of the four hour long hearing was Republicans trying to litigate really specific moderation decisions and Democrats saying, hey, it's ridiculous that we're doing this a week before the election. Let's talk about election security. And then a couple of people just saying they're refusing to participate because it's an embarrassment. That that happened, I think, twice. So what Addy uh, was mentioning was before these hearings begin, the you know, the the witnesses at hearings release their testimony, their, their opening statement. So you can get them. They're a PDF. I think a lot of people looked at Facebook's and said, whoa, Facebook is making a play here. This is a big deal. Facebook is saying, let's reform 230. We have some ideas. We want to participate in good ways and bad, mostly bad. 
And so then we you kind of expect the hearing to be about this big proposal from Facebook to reform 230. We'll talk about it soon. But the hearing was just a circus instead. I think there was one question or maybe two that were actually about 230. And the rest of it was just pure. I mean, I'm... Ted Cruz wants us to talk about this, and so I feel bad that we're going to talk about it. But like <laughs> uh, he he obviously rehearsed it. He put out uh, he tweeted out a poster that looked like a boxing or an MMA poster, Cruz versus Dorsey. I mean, it was insane, right? Yeah. So he, it's Cruz's turn to speak, and he says, "Well, look, I talked to I talked to Sundar Pichai and I talked to Mark Zuckerberg yesterday. I'm going to use my time on Jack." And he just started yelling, and he literally at the end was like. Who the hell elected you? And Jack was like, well, I invented Twitter. <laughs> right? Like, There's no other answer to that question. And it was just that level of theater the whole time. I think we have to also mention that Jack looked like somebody dragged him out of a cave. Yes. Long beard. But per- like the cave had great stylists in it. Yeah, for sure. But I definitely saw that picture of him and I immediately went and like cleaned up my, my beard a little bit. I was like, I can't. I, if that, <laughs> I want to be nowhere near that future. Yeah, super long ZZ Top beard and it, his hair was like messily combed forward with like perfect curls. Lens. It, he looked good. Mm. Yeah. But in a way that suggested that he either was about to just rip the solo from legs or look through your trash. It's like one or the other two was going to happen. Or institute a, a coup using wizardry in uh, old <laughs> Russia, right? Yeah. <laughs> I definitely watched, um, I've been watching really dumb movies to just distract myself. And I watched Transformers Age of Empires. And I was like, oh, he's Merlin. Oh my God. <laughs> That's Merlin. Merlin invented the Transformers. Addy, did you, I mean, obviously there's these moments of chaos that we, we should just talk about, but did you gather anything from this four hour adventure? I mean, the thing I gathered is largely in the testimony, which is that it looks like sites are, it looks like large tech companies are maybe going to be lining up behind this one specific sort of bipartisan, maybe less objectionable than the other bills. Otherwise, it was A, a repeat of a bunch of decisions we've already heard from about. uh, Also, it just kind of convinced me that a bunch of senators are terminally online because it is bizarre how much time they spent on Twitter a site that is just orders of magnitude smaller than Facebook and Google. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. This has been, I think, one of the more interesting sort of subplots of this whole year-long conversation about social media moderation, which blends right into the antitrust conversation, which blends into every other conversation. The last hearing, Zuckerberg was on the stand, and he was talking, and somebody asked him a question, and he was like, oh, that was a Twitter decision. Right. That, like that, that was an exchange that occurred where Mark Zuckerberg was like, I didn't do that. Twitter did that because they're all confused about the fact that these are different websites run by different <laughs> companies. These CEOs don't even necessarily like each other, but Twitter just occupies this psychic space for our politicians that is crazy to me. So Facebook is huge, right? It's like two billion active users. Just everyone in the world is like in Facebook. They also own Instagram. They also own WhatsApp. It's just this massive company with this huge footprint around the world. Google is huge. Until recently, if you wanted a coronavirus test in Oakland or San Francisco, you needed a Google (laughs) app. Right? Like Google is massive. They own YouTube. They are the only general search engine that exists. Everybody encounters Google. Facebook and Google also have multiple other interlocking businesses. So Google owns Google Cloud. Yeah. Like it's just a massive company with a huge footprint. Twitter is just Twitter. Yeah. So Twitter, the last stat I looked at 
Twitter has 31 million active users in the United States. The United States has about 322 million people in it. So one in 10 Americans uses Twitter. And the vast majority of people who use Twitter do not really post much on Twitter. Right. They're just consuming tweets. Yeah. I see this. I see this like three ways. There's one, Donald Trump is on Twitter and therefore it occupies a whole lot of people's attention and mind share because he's very on Twitter. Two, uh, in terms of the size thing, like you don't get mad at the sky, you get mad at the rain. Like Facebook is just too big to try and do anything about, I think, in, in some people's <laughs> mind. They just they take it as a given. Uh, but three, uh, there's this argument that we actually should probably get more into. I think you were going there, Addy, is even if a tiny number of people use Twitter, it is like the seed for a whole bunch of things that happen in the news. It is the thing that you'll see it on Twitter and then it turns into cable news for six hours a day or whatever. Um, and so that is, I think... Maybe where they're coming from, that's I'm maybe giving them too much of the benefit of the doubt there. Maybe Addy's right. They're just terminally online. But you could make the case that Twitter has outsized importance in American politics because the people that are using it are the people that set conversations in broader platforms later. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And that's the thing I keep kind of turning over in my head, because on one hand, like, Yes, it's very influential because it like everything that happens on Twitter often sets the conversation. That means it's very important to figure out who can participate and what they say. On the other hand, that's also just that's like saying it's like a really influential newswire service or something. <laughs> like I keep joking that eventually Twitter's final form is like Bloomberg buys it and turns it into a newswire because the only people on it are like PR people and journalists and politicians. <laughs> so it's just like a Bloomberg terminal, but everybody snarks on it. So it just it raises this weird question where if the argument is that lots of people pay attention to this thing where people post news, is that putting it in the same category as something that just massive numbers of people use purely as like a service provided by a company? Well, so this is the, the question. This is the reason I brought up antitrust. Usually when you want to impose some, when our government historically has wanted to go and monkey with a private business, it has needed some reason to do it. And so with antitrust, one reason is, well, you're the only company in the market and we think you're foreclosing competition or behaving in some harmful way. We're going to come and do stuff to you. That's a pretty high bar. Like this case against Google is the first antitrust case in like 50 years at this scale, right? To do speech regulation where the government is going to, you know, like set the First Amendment aside and say to Twitter what they can and cannot do, which is what all of this comes down to is how should Twitter moderate content on its platform? It's an even higher bar. And so you have to say Twitter is the only social media platform in the world that matters. And it matters so much that we can set aside the First Amendment, which is just Twitter is a chaotically run company that only one in 10 American use. Like, it's not a well-run company. It doesn't, like, operate in a rational or reasonable or stable way. That any moment, it feels like a careen off a cliff. And the thing that Congress, on kind of both sides of the aisle, is doing is saying Twitter is so important that we can we can end-run the First Amendment. I feel like I should also, like, the thing that makes this even weirder is that this entire debate was largely about Twitter adding warning labels to tweets and, like maybe making you click through to them or limiting their reach, that this entire thing isn't even about takedowns for Twitter, which just like I understand, again, like reach is on the Internet, like that's a part of speech, like making something very difficult to see that does absolutely matter. 
But on the other hand, we're not even talking about deletions. We're having this <laughs> giant conversation. They're not even taking down the tweets. Yeah. What was, what was the Mike Lee line? He was like, now when we talk about censorship and I define censorship as adding labels and doing fact checks, do you censor stuff? And all of them were like, no, that's not censorship. Like all three CEOs. And he was like, well, I am using censorship with a different definition. And it was it was one of the most insane moments of that entire hearing where a United States Senator decided that he had his own definition of censorship that they should all agree to and then admit that they were doing the thing. And it was like, they're very smart. They're the CEOs. All of them are billionaires. Like you can't just fool them by being like, here's what I'm saying. I've defined murder as blinking <laughs> your eyes. Have you murdered anyone? It's like, no, they're not going to fall for it. I mean, it's like it's like a monkey's paw where everyone is having a debate that I think is very interesting and they're doing it in such just the stupidest way possible in the worst faith they could possibly do it. Well, so actually, this was my big question is we need to talk about the potential substance of 230 and what Zuckerberg said about it. Disclosure, my wife works for whatever they're calling Oculus now, which is a division <laughs> of Facebook. Facebook um, Reality Labs. Thank you. Facebook Reality Labs. I should know this, but I don't report on it. So anyway, the, the question that I have is, is there a charitable read on the circus itself, on the purpose of the circus itself, beyond a bunch of people wanted to be seen on social networks, yelling about social networks and being censored on social networks right ahead of the election. Like that is the, to me, it's like that's the obvious cynical take of why they wanted the circus. Oh, I think it's worse than, I think the obvious cynical take is, is three clicks worse than that. Okay, sure. But is there a non-cynical good faith, there was a point to the circus take? Okay, I can give the good faith and Neil, I should give the bad faith. Okay. Um, I think the if you were going to be really, really charitable, you're still mostly just taking a weird utilitarian view. And it's that the idea is to get this on the table is to, yes, maybe it's a circus. It's really loud. But everybody thinks that the way that tech companies moderate their platforms is a huge issue. And this draws attention to it. This is kind of the reasoning behind a lot of the loose consensus between left-wing and right-wing folks who hate big tech is like, yes, I disagree with them, but at least they're bringing up the issue. Hmm. Yeah. I think the three clicks worse bad faith interpretation, which if you ask me right now in this moment of extreme election anxiety is the nightmare scenario is election day comes and goes. The votes aren't counted. We're still waiting on a winner. And Donald Trump tweets, I won. I'm the president. And Twitter puts a label on it. Right. Saying this is not true. And I don't think I think this entire exercise was for the Republicans on the committee to try to work the refs to make that moment of massive outsized importance such that Twitter doesn't do it. Or, you know, there's some other set of nonsense that happens. Vladimir Putin sends the Internet Research Agency to tweet and put ads on Facebook saying both Biden and Trump won on, you know, like to destabilize right. the whole election. And the platforms are shy about moderating that stuff. That to me is, that was the goal of this was to, to work the refs because the election is, is so contentious. Now, were they successful at that? I'm not like a fan of how any of these companies run their moderation teams. Um, I don't, I don't think they do a good job. And we've written how many features from KC about how simply operating YouTube and Facebook at scale means that some people get PTSD, right? There's just like a fact of Facebook. Like if you want to run Facebook at the scale, you need some moderators. Those moderators have to look at horrible things. 
they're going to get PTSD. That is just a fact. You should start there with your moderation decision. Do we think that they enforce their rules well? Do we think that they write their rules consistently? We do not. So I don't want to give them all too much credit. But at this hearing, all of them made it seem like they are thoughtful and rigorous and consistent above the fray, and they are not going to back down. So was this hearing even successful at doing that? Like, I don't know. I, it is crazy to me that Jack Dorsey came away from this looking like he had it. He's got a handle on it. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. And you can actually see Twitter's moderation decisions are getting more aggressive over time. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely getting more aggressive over time. They are more confident in what they're doing than they, ha- they were previously. I don't know if it's the same for Google and, and Facebook, but for Twitter, which is where all of the psychic energy is located... Yeah, they're just being way more aggressive than they used to be. So I don't know if this hearing was effective in working the refs, but if I had the bad faith interpretation, I would say that's what it's designed to do. Addy, do you think it's that dire? Which part of it is that dire? I mean, everything's dire. The work the refs ahead of election misinformation. I can't tell anymore because I just, I am in such a tech policy bubble that we all understand the extreme nuances of all of these things. And like, we get why what Ted Cruz said that was ridiculous this week is different from how he was ridiculous last week. I keep suspecting that there's just this large contingent of people for whom the tech lash and like the anti big tech section 230, whatever, is just this ongoing stream of nonsense they don't really care about. That like, yeah, maybe they probably like us think that tech companies and like web platforms screw up all the time. But they're just like, oh, yeah, no, okay, it's another thing where big tech wasn't good. And like, they're not going to see this as even a new beat in the story. Yeah, I feel like the the nightmare version of this coverage is always like the local news headline. that's like, should Twitter have to abide by the First Amendment? And you're like, well, we're just on different planets where on my planet, the First Amendment only applies to government. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about yours. And like that, I think that just amount of noise in the system certainly allows for a lot of policy decisions that, to me, look like terrifying speech regulation. I am surprised nobody's brought up the utilities argument, I will say. Everybody keeps trying, like, everyone in the Trump administration keeps trying to say, like, these companies are basically utilities, but no one will come out and actually say it. Yeah, the, 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 their magic word is the modern town square, which is very funny because it implies that, like, the town square previously was a well-regulated place where everyone was constantly just exchanging opinions instead of like um, just a place where people are yelling on some soapboxes and other people are trying to buy apples. Like that's my impression of what old town squares were like. I don't I know. I, I, I never went to one. If we did refer to them as town squares, we could start calling Jack Dorsey a uh, constable instead of CEO. That could be fun. <laughs> he did kind of look like a constable. <laughs> Let's talk about the actual 230 proposal that Facebook floated before this hearing. There's a lot to 230. I think the way I just want to set it up is I think the First Amendment prevents even the most aggressive Republicans from saying out loud, here are the moderation policies that I think Twitter should have. Right. I mean, they're just very direct, like Congress shall make no law respecting freedom of speech. Like there it is. They can't do it. They're Congress. They can't do that. But 230 is this big weapon where if they take it away. Twitter becomes liable for everything published on its platform, at least until some sequence of court cases solves that problem for them, or at least provides some boundaries. And if they take it away, Twitter's costs go up, their liability goes up, and Twitter might have to shut down. So it's like this existential threat for platforms of all sizes. Uh, somebody who works at Apple Insider like retweeted me y- yesterday during the hearing and was like, if 230 goes away, we have to shut down the Apple Insider forums. 
Like the liability risk is too high. They, I, they, I assure you they're not a monopoly. <laughs> like, like there's like, right. So 230 is this huge, huge weapon. It's an existential threat for a, a bunch of companies. And so they keep threatening to take it away so that they will impose speech regulations voluntarily that are whatever you might want to have. But there is still some like 230, the PACT Act, which is what Addy has been saying, seems to be the, the 230 reform that everybody's settled on. So Addy, what is the PACT Act? So the PACT Act is it is sort of a collection of different pieces, but the main thrust of it is that it's focused on, okay, we won't tell companies how to moderate exactly, but we're going to make sure that they publish what they're going to moderate for and like give you extreme transparency into like their terms of service and how they're moderating. And you have an appeals process. So if you think your ban was unreasonable, you can call a customer service line where a live representative will help you. And also if a court orders that something is illegal, they have to take it down within 24 hours. So that's a pretty moderate set of reforms, right? That's like Twitter needs to have customer service. Right. Compared to, say, any of the really strange Section 230 bills that are like the FTC should create a speech commission that you have to apply to, or the Earn It Act, which was like the DOJ gets carte blanche to just make rules, and if you don't abide by them, then too bad. Yeah. But the the Earn It Act was also like, you don't get to use... Uh, encryption on your messaging platform, right? Wasn't that the trade? No. So that was the thing. It never actually came out and said that. They made a big deal out of like, no, it doesn't actually say that. It just says the DOJ can do whatever it wants. And then Barr comes out and he's like, you know what's terrible? Encryption. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the connection between screaming about individual tweets in a hearing and the PACT Act? Like that, that's a pretty broad range, right? So if you want to... I'm being sort of charitable here. If you want to talk about it, then a lot of the hearing focused on trying to prove that Twitter's moderation was inconsistent. So it would be somebody would bring up, hey, there was this horrible dictator who'd said something horrible and you didn't label that. But then Trump said a different thing and you labeled that. And then Jack Dorsey would try to explain like the state monopoly on power or something Uh, Like he distinguishes between saber rattling internationally and violence against your own people. But the point is, they were trying to establish that, like, they were being unfair. And the PACT Act, the point of it is to mandate that companies are, in air quotes here, fair. So under this rule, Twitter theoretically has to publish its standards and Donald Trump has to be able to go and appeal to those standards and get a really good explanation or have his tweet unlabeled, I guess. A long, 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 long time ago, I got put in charge of the forums at Trio Central, and we were talking about the Trio smartphone. And, you know, like every website with a forum, you publish moderator guidelines. You say, these are our rules. They're relatively vague, but like you kind of know what they are. And then there's moderators. And then uh, because it was small, I got to say, look, if you want to appeal any of these things, you just, just email me and don't argue about it publicly, and I'm probably not going to litigate litigate it with you publicly because then that's all anybody will talk about ever. So it sounds like what they want is for just like this endless opportunity to nitpick moderation rules out in public and like make it the focus of discussion around these things like that. I don't know. That just sounds like a nightmare to me. My original cut of my very first moderation rules was my decisions are final. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. And like, I, I, that could have worked. But 
the problem now is you can't go anywhere else, at least if we're talking about Facebook. So this is the thing that's really weird and hard is that it feels like there is a fundamental difference between something like the Apple Insider forums and Twitter. Like they feel like just fundamentally different services. One of them's kind of like the phone company and others like some kind of random hotline you can call and like chat with people. Yeah. But they're trying to make laws that cover both of them. The PACT Act has this like small business exemption, but it's kind of narrow and hard to tell exactly how it would be enforced. But basically, they're trying to make law that's going to affect both these incredibly different kinds of services. And they're basically doing it only by ever talking to the people who run the gigantic services. And that's really frustrating. And I just continue to point out that Twitter is not it's not even in the category of gigantic. Okay, it's not even it's bigger. It's yeah. Twitter's still like a really big company. It, it, it's, it is a very big company. It's not a community. I feel like we could just, that's like hours of conversation. <laughs> we, it, it happened to us too. We're like focused on Twitter. But I, I think I've, I've said this on like every episode of the show that we've talked about YouTube on ever. Like YouTube creators are always mad at YouTube. They're always mad at YouTube. Mm-hmm. And what happens in YouTube chat, like live stream chat. I watched the hearing on YouTube yesterday and the live chat was up and I was like, this is horrible. I was like, someone should moderate this chat. (laughs) Like YouTube has this enormous scale of moderation problems and content monetization problems. And they're all hyper specific. You need to know the language of YouTube to understand what is happening on YouTube. I don't know how you could take any particular law that you've written for the problems with Twitter, glue them onto YouTube and actually make life better for the individual YouTube creator or the member of the YouTube community that just wants a nice place to watch videos and talk to other people in that community. But that seems impossible. Well, Eddie, you brought up in your piece, I mean, there's YouTube, but you also brought up, I think you brought up Reddit. Like Reddit has got like subreddits where they set their moderation rules. And so like, does each one of them going to be subject to the rules of the PACT Act? Is Reddit as a whole going to be like, it sounds like a, like a fiasco. Yeah. It, well, this is the problem is that it's really hard for me to answer those questions because they put out this year, this uh, bill. They actually did have a pretty good hearing on it where they invited mostly a bunch of legal experts and they kind of hashed things out. But it's really difficult to tell what this would practically mean for a bunch of companies because, yeah, it's all it's this very angels dancing on the head of a pin kind of scenario where they're making these rules And then those rules have to get translated through not only individual moderation decisions, but the fact that a bunch of these decisions are made by AIs. And so you have to assume that you can like make a bot that understands the spirit of this law, or you just have to prepare for this gigantic flood of people contesting the rules. And I feel like nobody is prepared for that. I think that the issue underlying all of this is when... Dieter ran the Trio Central Forums. <laughs> that, that His first instinct <laughs> at a rule was if you don't like it, go somewhere else, right? What was your big competitor at Trio Central Forums? Uh, there were a bunch. Palm Info Center had forums. Uh, there was also Geronauts. Dieter's um, so in it. He's like, they were, he's like here, here, here they are ranked by their danger Howard to Forums me. was a, was a oh, big Hofo one. Oh, HOFO was great. HOFO was great. Right. So that's a competitive market. If you're mad on Trio Central, you're going to go to Howard Forums or you're going to go to Trio Knots. And that is a reasonable thing to say. If you are mad at Twitter, are you going to go to Parler? Right. Like, I don't know that that is the answer. None of these companies are one for one competitors with each other. If you're mad at Twitter and you go to Facebook, you have a wholly different kind of experience. If you are mad at YouTube and you go to Vimeo, you're going to start making very arty movies for a very much smaller <laughs> audience very quickly. Is like, isn't the real problem here that there's just such a lack of competition that we feel comfortable 
making what is effectively speech regulation? I can't like that's a thing that sounds so incredibly reasonable. And it's a thing I feel like I said for a really long time. And the more I watch people try to make alternatives, the more it just it feels like there is no world where there are three separate but roughly equivalent Twitters that you can move between. Or like it seems like when competitors show up, there's stuff like TikTok, which, yeah, is not a one to one substitution. And I, so I don't know anymore. Like it feels like also the more people talk about tech as just these three big companies, the more they will never see something like the trio forums as viable again. That like nobody is going to bother joining independent sites because they only define themselves as either we don't exist or mm. like a Facebook group or, hey, join us specifically because you hate Facebook, which is a dumb reason to join something. Well, I mean, there's a there's a scale issue like like discords are super popular right now. Right. Like but the, they, they work because they're smaller. Um, so there, there's always something, but there's not there's never like going to be. I don't see Discord taking Facebook on anytime soon, for example. I mean, Discord and Reddit are interesting because so much of them are self They're like community moderated and they work. They're more like software. Like Discord is almost literally software. It has central moderation, but it's the I really like the idea of social networks as being software and tools that then moderation ends up falling to communities that has its own share of gigantic problems. But it it's the thing that like feels good to me and that makes me happy and very little about social media makes me happy. Have I said the thing about the Eero subreddit on this show yet? I know I talked to Dieter about it once, but there's an Eero, the Eero router. There's a mm -hmm. subreddit of passionate Eero fans on Reddit and it has insanely strong moderation, which is very funny to me. So you can't even post in the Eero subreddit unless your account is of a certain age and you have enough karma and yeah. those numbers are not disclosed wow. because they don't want people to game it. So they're like high numbers that are secrets by the mods. And they're like, we don't understand why we need this. But in order to keep the Eero subreddit peaceful, we're gating the community and moderating very harshly because like Nighthawk fans show up and like troll the Eero <laughs> forums with bots. And every time we have one of these hearings, I'm like, I feel like we should ask the mods from the Eero subreddit to tell Congress what it's like to moderate their mesh Wi-Fi router community with that. And like, we're going to take those tools away from them. I want that so badly. I want them to hold those like they, when they were doing antitrust reform, they were like, hey, we're just going to call up a bunch of companies and they're going to tell you how like Apple screwed them over. I really I would kill for a hearing where they would just bring up people who are actually moderators or like runners of small services that rely on 230 and let them talk. Uh, I would actually love for them to call up some people uh, whose businesses and livelihoods were affected by FOSTA-SESTA. Yes, yeah. there have been like news about them opening investigations into seeing what the effects of those were. And I haven't heard anything about it since. And I am super curious about it because, yeah, it's the test case for any kind of change to Section 230. Now, actually, we should probably, in case people aren't familiar, explain. You could probably do it better than I can, what I was referring to there. So SESTA-FOSTA is, which maybe we refer to it as FOSTA-SESTA. It's a, a law. And it just, there are a couple of things that Section 230 just doesn't protect against. So the one before this, the best known one is like copyright that there's just a carve-out. And so SESTA-FOSTA used that same logic to add a carve-out for anything related to anti-prostitution or anti-trafficking laws. And the result was that basically anything related to sex work ended up becoming ridiculously dangerous for sites to host, and they just kicked off sex workers. 
And I mean, th- that is complicated by the fact that it's a bad law in general. Like I might totally believe that anti-harassment laws are valid and that therefore, if we're going to talk about keeping harassment and libel off a platform, that's a conversation. Anti-prostitution laws are bad. And so it's hard to make a one-to-one comparison. But yeah, it's not a good law. The SESTA-FOSTA, it's a bad carve-out. We have had a little coverage, but you're right, Addy. We should take another crack at it in the after period. You know, the, the future is coming. I'm told that there's a future after Tuesday. I just can't quite see it, but we should probably take another crack at it. I want to, We said we were going to talk about this. We've gone a little bit over in this section, but Facebook did put forward a proposal in its testimony. It seems very aggressive. Can you just quickly give it people what a sense of what it is? So it was aggressive, but it's sort of more rhetorically aggressive than specifically. So the paragraph that they um, that Mark Zuckerberg has is the debate about Section 230 shows that people of all political persuasions are unhappy with the status quo. People want to know that companies are taking responsibility for combating harmful content, especially illegal activity on their platforms. And they want to know that when platforms remove content, they're doing so fairly and transparently. And they want to make sure that platforms are held accountable. So then he says, okay, look, changing, it's a significant decision, but they should, quote, update the law to make sure it's working as intended. We support the ideas around transparency and industry collaboration that are being discussed in some of the current bipartisan proposals, and I look forward to a meaningful dialogue. The do not mention PAC specifically, but transparency is, like, the PACT Act is the highest profile transparency-related 230 bill. Somebody called it out in the hearing. Um, So it seems related to that. It feels like Facebook is saying, yeah, make change the law. We can pay to comply with it. And other smaller competitors might not be able to. And this is great for us. I mean, Facebook already puts out these ridiculously detailed transparency reports every quarter and has these gigantic policy teams that are all working on similar things. So, yeah. Yeah, I think as Zuckerberg said at the hearing there right now, they're like moderation and compliance. The amount they spend on moderation and compliance is more than Facebook's revenue at the time of its IPO just to give you a sense of how much Facebook spends. So uh, that is one of those moments where you see the big company saying, yep, pass the regulation, we can pay for it, and our competitors might not be able to. And people have read that very aggressively. I think Mike Masnick at TechDirt was like, Facebook declares war on the open internet. Throwing them under the bus, slightly less active. Throwing the open internet under the bus. Do you read it that aggressively? I can't tell. I think it's sort of that. I think throwing under the bus is not a bad comparison. Like it doesn't necessarily, I don't think that like, is it a school bus or a Greyhound? No, it's different. Like I I guess more like allowing it to fall under the bus. I don't actually think that there's this conspiracy where Facebook is trying to shut down discord or something, but I think it's like, look, people aren't going to stop complaining about section two thirty. I should, we should do something to get them off our back. Let's do the thing that we can deal with. And it's not a huge problem for us. And other companies. Sorry, too bad. There's the bus. (laughs) <laughs> the bus is coming. <laughs> um, okay, we got to wrap this up. One thing I do want to call out, regardless of what happens in Congress with 230 in these laws, the Trump administration did put out an executive order asking the FCC to reinterpret 230. Sorry, clarify. 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 It's just amazing. Again, you can just read it. We started the show with jokes about the subsections of 230. 230 is remarkably easy to read. I encourage everybody listening to this. Just go read it. Buy the Kossoff book. The 26 words that created the internet. Go read that book. Like, just read, but read the law. You just Google it and read it. It's very short, very easy to read. Anyhow, the Trump administration asked the FCC to reinterpret, clarify the law. This caused enough consternation to see that a Republican FCC commissioner who said, this is a little First Amendment meet for me, got yanked and replaced 
this happened. Trump did this. And Ajit Pai, who was a little iffy about it, finally decided to do it. Brendan Carr, who's a commissioner kind of next in line if Trump wins to be the chairman, is like all over Fox News, like shows up on Tucker Carlson to rail about Twitter all the time. And McKenna wrote a profile of Brendan Carr and his big shift from sort of Reagan style, small government limited regulation to like mega warrior. Let's regulate Twitter. It's a that's like a big story. That's a big shift in the party. That's Josh Hawley. That's all these characters that we talk about saying we should regulate companies directly in a way that sort of previous conservatives did not want to read that profile. It's very good. It's up on the site. Kind of puts a lot of this into perspective. Okay. We got to stop talking about 2.30. Addy, thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. I, I, after the election, I'm sure this is all going to come up again. We'll have you back on soon, but thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a break and come back with Ashley and we're going to talk about some gadgets. If you game, you know, settling into your battle station feels enlivening. But gaming on Alienware gear with Intel Core i9 processors, it's more than that. It's a feeling you won't forget. It's where intentional design blurs the line between fantasy and reality. It's where your gear feels like an extension of you. Sometimes it's so immersive, so responsive, you can't tell yourself from your machine. If you're ready to feel one with your gear, start gaming at Alienware.com, featuring the Alienware M15. We're back. Ashley Carmen's here. Hey, Ash. Hello. I was just saying it's been like we've talked a lot in Slack, but it's been months since we've actually talked. So this is very nice. I know. I was really excited I got to come on because I haven't talked to you or Dieter in what feels like an eternity. It's been a long time. Here's my new here's how I my new COVID management style. If you want to talk to me, you gotta launch a video series. <laughs> it has to be in the sales contract that you get to talk to Eli today. It's uh, become a real monster in, of quarantine <laughs> management. It's great. Uh, no, but you uh, in the making is back. That's your video series where you talk to gadget makers about making stuff. You know, I, I love hustlers. This is some like true hustler coverage that you're doing. Your first episode out. It's about people trying to hustle their way into live shopping. Tell us about it. Yeah. So for people who don't know, it's called In the Making. It's on YouTube. It's about all the challenges that independent hardware startups face. This season, we're just doing a couple episodes, doing it during the pandemic, which has been an interesting challenge. But the first episode covers, I'd heard from gadget startups before that they had gone on QVC and HSN, which like shocked me, shocked me because I don't know about you guys, but I definitely think of grandmas when I think of QVC and HSN. (laughs) And I'm like, grandmas are buying like Mophie battery packs on QVC? Okay, like sure. So anyway, I was like, you know what? I really want to dive into that. So for this episode, I spoke to a bunch of different companies, including Zag, which owns Mophie. Also a smaller startup named Somnox, which makes a $600 sleep robot, which we can talk more about if you're interested. (laughs) And another company that we makes a bunch of different stuff. But one of the things they make is something called the Sobro, which is a connected coffee table that has like a refrigerator in it and like Bluetooth speakers and charging ports and all the things. So I talked to them about how QVC works and whether it's been successful for them. And there's some mixed stories, but the wide agreement seems to be that QVC and HSN, the secrets of selling lots of gadgets in minutes that you probably never knew about. Who is buying the gadgets from them on QVC and HSN? So, Do know? Well, so this was kind of like the thing that's a little difficult to get because I talked to QVC and HSM first of all, and they, I was like, okay, grandmas. 
And they're like, no, 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 no. Our, our main age demographic is between 35 and 60. And I'm like, hmm, that's a, <laughs> that's, that's a that's large a range. range there. <laughs> and a lot of the companies didn't really want to speak to it, but one of them did. It's not actually in the episode, but he, he said, yes, the buyers are definitely older. But he's like, but don't think that's bad because they have tons of cash to just spend and they're like willing to watch the segments and they need to buy things for people. So he's like, it's great. We don't reach them on Instagram or Facebook. So actually this is super awesome for us. Is it like old people and like very stoned young people? That's my sense of the split where you're like, I definitely need a coffee table with a refrigerator in it. It's 3am. I'm calling that number. Well, According to QVC, they are one of the top Facebook live streamers as well. They have like oh a gosh. special deal with them. So it is entirely possible that, you know, someone shares that link or you have a fond memory of QVC and you just go check it out and all of a sudden you're hooked in and you're like, oh my God, I'm watching this on Facebook live or in their app or wherever. They're everywhere. They're actually everywhere. All of this just makes me a little bit afraid. My dad was the night shift ER doctor when I was a kid. So my mom worked in the day and my dad worked at night. So that was just like the deal they had. And she could never fall asleep when he wasn't working. And my house was full of QVC stuff, like food dehydrators <laughs> coming out of our ears. Like oh my God. if it was as seen on TV, my dad was like, yeah, that seems great. Cause he, had, he was just like, it was like Wisconsin in the eighties. There was not a lot of other content to consume Amazing. at like three in the morning when he couldn't sleep. And now I'm just like, this is horrible. Like we're about to get so many Zag battery packs. I'm about to say, you should check in with your mom. <laughs> yeah. One element of your story that I thought was really interesting was how much of a performance, like how much of a show QVC is for these companies. Mm -hmm. Do they feel, were they like, I got to get amped up to hustle out some battery packs? Yeah. So one aspect of this video that I also mentioned, if people watch it, is we also talk a little bit about the psychology slash the techniques that QVC uses to sell you on things. So like you're kind of mentioning this idea of we only have 15 units left, better by now, like things like that. But the so what QVC does is they invite the companies to have a spokesperson, a host to come on with QVC's own hosts. So for a lot of these companies, they take this really seriously. So the one who makes the Sobro, for example, hired a former Broadway actor as their host. And he, you know, is obviously very charismatic and personable. So for him, he's just a salesperson, but they are really, he's a full-time employee. Like this is an investment for them. Wait, really? Like this company has a full-time QVC guy? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Like this is a huge part of their business. And wild. for the sleep robot company, they just happened to have a really charismatic CEO who was great to talk to. And he goes live himself, but obviously he's a huge proponent of the product. So he gets kind of almost like interviewed. And then the salespeople do their job, which is like, wow, that's amazing. We always talk about retail for these gadgets in terms of Amazon being a huge monster, right? Like this seems like a really big, lucrative, not Amazon sales channel, but it is only there's only like the two companies. Do they do they have the same kind of relationships with the QVCs and HSNs as we hear about so much with like Amazon? Well, I will say I think they're a little bit afraid of QVC and HSN because they're the gatekeepers in the sense of like if QVC doesn't book you, you're not booked. <laughs> and you're not going on QVC <laughs> and they're scouting products. So like one of the companies we interviewed, the one behind the Sobro was saying they went to a trade show and QVC came up to them. and was like, we know we see potential here. Like this could sell. And so it's kind of like talent scouting on QVC's end. But then once you're hooked in, they don't want to lose that. So 
There's still, though, um, that comes with some major risks, actually, for some of the smaller startups. So this sleep robot company, for example, did great their first time on QVC. They sold, keep in mind, this is a $600 sleep robot. And you guys have talked to enough hardware companies that I'm sure you've talked to about retail where you know, honestly, I have heard from a company, they're like, we do great. We sell like one unit a day at Best Buy. And I was like, that's great. Like what? Yeah. You have to really like start thinking about this on the scale. So for this dude to sell out the first time he went live, 60 units of a $600 sleep robot, that's like their year, you know, that's amazing. So he got totally hooked on it and was like, you know what? Next time we go, 250 units. Wow. And because they're a small startup, you know, that's why startups use crowdfunding a lot of the time is to front that manufacturing cost, get the money. So they're bootstrapped and they don't have a ton of cash, but he fronted the cost for manufacturing only to not sell out. And so QVC, I guess they don't like to talk about their deals, but according to him, QVC does have a clause that they have to buy back any product that doesn't sell. So what ended up happening is he had to buy back all the units that didn't sell. Oh my gosh. And that's a huge problem. The the thing that I think that I vaguely knew, but uh, you really explained really well, is when you sell in Best Buy, you know, Best Buy buys it in wholesale, and then it's theirs, and it's their problem. But when people go on QVC, they literally have to like give their products to QVC, sell them, and then buy back the other stuff. So there's like an extra layer of buying and selling that happens behind the scenes that turns out is very beneficial to QVC and not so much to the people that come on. But apparently the the chances of getting a big payday are so hot or so exciting that they're willing to take that risk. Yeah. And I mean, so this company behind the Sobro, for example, they're not, they're not a startup. And a lot of the things they sell are like mini muffin makers, which (laughs) yes, it's cash to front, but you're also probably going to like be able to sell those. It becomes especially risky when you're talking about a wild ass gadget, like a $600 sleep robot. Wait, can you just tell me more about the $600 sleep robot? (laughs) It is a robot. It's a pillow. It looks like a pillow, but there's, I guess, a motor inside that kind of like vacillates, like it moves. So it's supposed to sync up to your breathing so that it's like you're holding as if you were holding like a human or something, you're holding it. It's like breathing. So you're supposed to kind of like follow its breath and then fall asleep. I don't think he would have sold any of these on QVC. <laughs> and this is why. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't. Yeah. The Terminator is in bed with you. <laughs> so you also cover Instagram and you and I have been talking about this a lot, that Instagram is just slowly turning into a catalog. Feels like decades ago that we talked about your like first Instagram purchase on why'd you push that button? Yeah. I have a whole story about griddles that I, I'm like thinking about in my head. Oh boy. Like dad Instagram and dad TikTok went crazy for griddles at the beginning <laughs> of the pandemic. It's a real, it's a real thing. I'm not going to talk about it now. But if you're interested, just you know, tweet at me. Um, but Instagram is basically doing QVC now on their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this past year has really been huge for live shopping on the tech platform. So Instagram rolled out live. They've always had live, but now you can tag products in live. So it can be like live shopping. That was the summer. Amazon rolled out its live influencer program. So now influencers can go live on Amazon, basically like QVC. Google, this isn't live, but Google's kind of starting to dip its toes into this idea of like influencer shopping. They have an app called Shoploop that is not live. It's more like shoppable stories, but I can, I'm sure they're heading that, like, you know, they're probably heading that way. So, and then Facebook also has shoppable 
lives. So yeah, I mean, this is becoming a full-fledged thing where you can just, I, I imagine soon we'll be seeing a lot more lives where you're going to be shopping from them and it's going to be like QVC, but on your phone. I noticed on Prime Day, like that if you opened the Amazon app, like one of the first things you saw was something that looked exactly like QVC. And like Prime Day is so overwhelming that for Amazon to hire its own video host to just like get you through it seems incredible. There's a part of this that seems very connected to what Julia covers, which is QVC is a cable channel. I don't know how many people have the QVC app on their Roku or whatever. Do you, is there like a just an inflection point coming where enough people leave cable behind and the, pl- the tech platforms just sort of take over the function? It seems possible. But what I will say is I've watched, you know, a decent number of Amazon lives. And obviously, we've all of us have seen Instagram lives before. Really, I think what makes QVC work is they have these amazing studio setups. If you watch the video, you'll see we have a one of the, the B-roll we use is them jumpstarting a car in the studio. Like they have resources. Their hosts look good. They're in a real set. They have a professional camera person. There's lights. When the influencers go live, some of this looks like trash. Like <laughs> them in their bedroom trying stuff on. And I'm not going to say that won't work for some people, but I think for a lot of people, you're kind of like, why would I buy this? It makes sense for YouTube to tag videos, you know, like you're doing your thing. I just don't know how the I, live is a whole different beast. You have to keep people entertained. I think you really have to be professional. So some people will probably be able to pull it off, but I have a feeling it won't be as DIY as it looks right now. Yeah. I just wonder what the future of the day that QVC is like Amazon prime streaming has a QVC like channel on it or the Amazon app live stream host is killing our business. Mm -hmm. It just seems like that's the day that's coming for us. Yeah. I mean, the difference is that I guess in this case, like QVC is the retailer, right? So QVC has a vested interest to sell these things and they they're curating what they sell. Whereas with Instagram, it's not, they're not a retailer. They don't really care. They're like, just buy some stuff. We don't care what it is. And <laughs> we just want to take some points off the credit card fee. Exactly. Yeah. And and same with Amazon. Like they are a retailer, but I think the way they're doing it now more is like just the influencers can tag affiliate links. So I, I it's just interesting different dynamics in retail versus the platform should be like, anyone can go live, just we'll get a cut of whatever you sell. We don't care what you sell though. Yeah. All right. What's in the making? You got another episode coming. What's the next episode? Yeah. So the next episode is about Chinese entrepreneurs. Um, Obviously, this year was a lot of discussion around TikTok and WeChat in the government and in the US. We're not focusing on software, but we're talking about the unique challenges that Chinese entrepreneurs face when they want to break into the US. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Do they have thoughts on TikTok? Oh, yeah. I'm done for it. Okay. Ashley, stick around. We got to come back. We got to take a break. We'll come back. We have like a lot of gadgets. We're going to do a gadget lightning round. I just want to hear your take on the many, the many weird phones that we have. We'll be right back. This episode of this is brought to you by Avast, a global leader in cybersecurity. When you move across the internet, you leave digital breadcrumbs behind you. Valuable information on things like your location, health, and finances. Data brokers can sell this information to third parties, which can have serious consequences. Avast BreachGuard automatically scans the web for your data and gets your data back from broker databases so third parties can't take advantage. Avast also alerts you if your passwords have been leaked so you stay protected from all sides. With our digital footprints growing bigger every day, it's important to have backup to help keep us safe. 
Join over 435 million users who trust Avast to keep them private and protected online. Don't worry about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or cybercrime, because Avast has your back. Learn more about Avast's privacy, security, and performance products at avast.com. Is your business ready to be a 5G business? Get the coverage of 5G nationwide in more than 1,800 cities, and in more and more cities, the unprecedented performance of 5G ultra-wideband, the fastest 5G in the world. From America's most reliable network comes the 5G business has been waiting for, Verizon 5G. 5G ultra-wideband enables immersive AR experiences, collaborative VR environments, and seamless 4K video conferences for businesses of any size. Verizon 5G won't just transform how your phone works, it can transform how entire industries work. Get 5G built right from the network businesses rely on. Visit verizon.com slash 5G slash business to learn more. 5G ultra-wideband available only in parts of select cities. Global claim based on open signal independent analysis during the period of January 31st through April 30th, 2020. All right. Dude, we, there's like a lot of weird phones this week. Yeah. You know, we have been, I've been saying I'm excited for phones to get weird again. Weird phones are back. Different form factors are coming. Get ready for excitement. And the very first wave of them has crashed upon us. And um, <laughs> I'm just going to keep waiting for the next one, I guess. It's like, uh, there's a surfing metaphor in here somewhere. But yeah, I don't know. So I'm a, I reviewed the Moto Razor, the 2020 edition, which has 5G. And they fixed all of the problems from the first one that they were capable of fixing. So it doesn't creak anymore when you open it. It doesn't, like, make a, a cracking noise. It does make a little bit of, like, a slither noise. You can, like, hear the plastic screen sliding. Um, Weird. But it's fine. It's, like, a totally, perfectly good, fine phone. Uh, it just costs $1,400, and the camera is mediocre, right? But, you know, it's prettier than the LG... Uh, uh, not the LG. It's prettier than the Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 5G. Got it. Made it Made it through. I feel like part of your job is just remembering really horrible phone names. I just want these folding phone prices to come down because right, I, I'm tired of talking about them in this context of if you got a whole lot of money to throw away in a phone that would otherwise cost you $400, go for it. Um, but that's what the Motorola Razr is. Every time I look at this Razr, I think if that phone had a good camera, I'd buy it. Yep. Uh, it does. It, I'm so taken with it. It has a good camera, like one out of four times. It's like, wow, <laughs> got that. That's great. And then the other three times, you're like, why is why is it doing? What is it doing? There was one night mode shot where the the Z Flip, regular Z Flip, uh, took the shot at like 800 ISO and wasn't in night mode. And uh, the Moto Razor saw that and they're like, oh. Yeah, this needs to be 3200, and we're turning on night mode also. I was like, what are you doing? This <laughs> is grain city, but for no good reason. Ashley, does the, does the razor entice you? First of all, I feel like a, lot, a few of the stories we're going to talk about are literally look like headlines from 2006. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's that season of phones again, 100%. Every time I see it, I'm like, wait, what year is it? I actually don't know. Um, no, this is, I mean, this phone is really cool. And it's funny because I remember when we were doing Circuit Breaker, I was always like, I want like a cool flip phone. This was my whole thing. Yes. And now it's here and now I'm just like, meh. Okay, you guys proved me right. You could do it. And now I'm like, meh. I just want my iMessage. <laughs> There's that also. But the thing that I'll be curious about is what phones like the Razer do in response to whatever happens with the iPhone 12 mini. 
uh, because if the point of the iPhone 12 mini is that it fits in a pocket uh, or a purse in a better way or whatever, well, a folding phone actually can make, in theory, a better case for that. Um, they just haven't done it yet. So if the iPhone 12 mini turns out to be wildly popular, I think we can expect maybe a bigger push for folding phones uh, next year. Yeah, and there was a iPhone 12 mini hands-on video. Yeah. it Not, not in English. I think it was Italian. It was a very strange video, but the thing is very small. Yeah. The LG Wing came out. Heim reviewed it. We've got a hands-on of it and a video that you can watch. This phone, to me, looks sick. Like, I definitely want a phone where you just, like, flip it out. It makes a T for some reason, and then you can brandish it in, like, any one of six configurations. It does seem like the software is kind of all over the place, though. I mean, it's an LG phone. What do you expect the software to do? But this is one of those where it's, like, if if not, this is... This is the iMessage phone. Like, we just had a whole thing about Congress. Uh-huh. Like, LG should go in front of Congress and be like, look, y'all, if iMessage ran on this phone, everyone would buy this phone because it looks crazy. Right. This is the competition you're not getting, Ted Cruz. <laughs> and then Ted Cruz would, like, scream at LG. Like, that is that the moment you want? Yeah. I don't know if the LG wing <laughs> is, the, uh, is the, the standard bearer for that moment. I would love that. I mean, LG is fully in the, uh, like honey badger phase of its smartphone life right it's just it has been trying weird stuff forever um and it's just getting weirder uh so this thing is nuts like you remember they had they like had the thing with like the modular batteries it had a removable battery and like this like bottom of the phone like unlatched and you could like attach other modules to it along with like spare batteries they just do this stuff um it never lasts more than a year or two but someday one of these things is going to land someday I believe in it. I'm just telling you, there are people out there right now who always want the weirdest phone, mm-hmm. and they can't get it because they want blue bubbles too. Yeah, I'm telling you, Congress should just be focused on not messaging. Give up on blue bubbles. Let it go. This is, I think, the headline that Ashley was calling out as being straight from 2006. Uh, Verizon made a Yahoo phone. I literally thought this was like, and I don't know, like someone vetted it, and I was like, what? You guys, like, this is such an old link. Why did you even, like, how did this end up on your Twitter? <laughs> like, I was like, what? How did Tom get duped by this? Uh, the only reason I want to bring this up is to just, right, all the carriers are doing media stuff, right? AT&T bought Warner, uh, Time Warner, turned into Warner Media. Julia spends all of her time tracking the politics of Warner Media and, like, the slow destruction of whatever it was to be replaced by AT&T executives. T-Mobile... We've got one of our lightning round headlines here. T-Mobile just launched a new TV streaming service called T-Vision. Which is relatively uh, inexpensive right now, as all TV services are in their introduction. And then it'll get more expensive over time. And then T-Mobile also has all kinds of deals. Famously, T-Mobile gave away Quibi for free. So T-Mobile, I would say, has content efforts, but not at any particular scale. But they're they're doing bundled content stuff. Verizon, I just need to disclose I used to work for Engadget. But Verizon... (sighs) like bought AOL, they bought Yahoo. They, that was all wrapped up in the Huffington post. Mm-hmm. All of it has failed. They took the, they took an oath to, they took an oath and then they renamed oath into the Verizon media group. They own TechCrunch. Like their media efforts have just been so weird and wacky. And they're trying to sell the Huffington post. Now, no one at AOL knows what they're doing. And they're like, what if we do a Yahoo phone? Meanwhile, ATV is like, we own CNN. Like the difference in scale between those two approaches is very funny to me. And I, I'm just going to say this right now. I would use the Yahoo phone. (laughs) We were talking about battery packs. MagSafe is a big moment. I think for phone battery packs, Mophie made a battery pack that just clicks on the back of your phone. I love this thing. (laughs) 
Yeah. I love it so much. So it's not actually not just a battery that clicks. It is a battery that clicks to your phone, but what it actually is, what are they, what's the, the, the ring on the back pop of the socket. phone? The pop socket. It's a pop socket? So it has a little ring on it, but it's just a, a square that you 3M tape to the back of your case. And then what the battery does is it just locks onto that square and has a Qi charger inside it and Qi charges your phone through the square, which means that you get a pop socket. You get a little phone stand, and when you want to have a spare battery or put a battery on your phone, you just, like, slide it onto the back, and you're charging, and you're done. You don't have, you don't have an extra case sticking out of the bottom, covering up the port, and, like, hassles and fiascos. You just, like, slide the battery on, and you're charging your phone. It's the best. A great product for a pre-pandemic time. <laughs> Dieter, I, T-Mobile is expanding its 5G network. What does this mean to you? You know, go outside and if your phone shows a 5G uh, icon and you're on T-Mobile, do a little happy dance and hope that it's not slower than LTE because it might be. But the networks aren't very saturated yet, so it might be okay. I feel like a lot of people who have um, started getting iPhone 12s have, on AT&T have realized like AT&T says it has a millimeter wave. Yeah. It does not. Mm -hmm. Um, the AT&T 5G E logo versus real 5G logo is also very funny to me. Um, oh, by the way, actually, AT&T, when it does have millimeter wave, I think I believe it shows 5G plus. So if you have an AT&T iPhone, it's either 5G E, which is LTE advanced, <laughs> or it's 5G, which is sub 6 5G, or it's a 5G plus, which is millimeter wave. Yeah. They also own CNN, which I would just point out <laughs> again, is ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, Service Pro X review and an Echo Dot review, the new ball-shaped one. Go read them. I think Dan was a little less taken with the ball-shaped Echo Dot. The dot shouldn't be a ball. The bot should not be. It should not be a sphere. It should be. A, it should be a, a, a disc. Spheres uh, are hot this year. Yeah, I was about to say orbs are the thing. Yeah, but the you want to hang the you want to hang the dot on the wall. You want to put it in a weird corner. You don't want to set it on the table. It's a design piece. Yeah. Yeah, but that's what the big Echo is for. I literally was upstate in an Airbnb, and every light was an orb. Wow. So, Vox, Voxon's building a giant orb in the middle of Wisconsin. For no I reason. think orbs are in. They should make it an echo. Oh, can I can I just say one Fox thing before we talk about the S5? We press release today. San Francisco 49ers launch first 8K instant replay system in the stadium uh -huh. with Fox on industrial internet, which is the Wisconsin subsidiary. So they got to 8K. Wow. I don't know if that stadium is 5G. Ooh. Like, guarantee you there's no yeah. But it's just funny because, like, it's a huge scoreboard inside of Levi Stadium, and then like the Foxconn logo is there. And it's like this is all just a waste. Okay. The PS5 is rolling out in very strange, like staggers, right? They was like people have done unboxings. We played with the controller. Same thing has happened happened with the Xbox um yeah. Series X. And like this is how the Surface came out. People do hardware hands-ons, but not that. This is you should get ready for more gadgets to be unveiled in stages in this way going forward, I think. I think it's just like pandemic times, right? Maybe. Anyway, we have a bunch of photos of the PS5. The thing looks enormous. It's it looks so ridiculous. Big. Every every time I look at a photo of this thing, I'm like, I'm going to buy an Xbox. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm a PlayStation person. I'm like, I I don't want this. So I went over to uh, Viren's place to look at it and uh, play a little bit of Astro's Playroom. Um, it is huge. It's just it's gigantic. You eventually... Are like you become a little bit blind to it eventually, sort of, you know, in the same way that like you become blind to, I don't know, the notch on your phone, which let's be honest, yeah. still looks really dumb. But yeah, it's, it's so big. <laughs> Ashley's just shaking it's, her head. It's horrid. I watched, it's horrid. I watched Ashley in the Google Doc, like click on the thing, her name popped up. 
And then I know what happened. She looked at the picture and then she started take, shaking her head. I just pictured like, I just pictured what would happen if like I walked into my boyfriend's apartment and he had this and I was just like, no, mm-hmm. like it would just be yeah. a flat. No, you need to put that away. Like, no, that's not allowed in this apartment here. But so, okay. I played Astro's Playroom and there's like two things to talk about with it. One, um, you know, it's, it's a little, you know, cute little game. The graphics are very good, as you'd expect. The ray tracing is very fun. You can, like, see reflections on things and, like, move them in the shadows and everything's in real time. And that's all fun. Uh, I think we'll find out much more about graphics in the games closer to the full review. But the DualSense controller is bonkers. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it feels like a controller or whatever. Uh, but they have put a louder speaker in it. And they have put stronger haptics in both the hand grips and in the middle, I think. Maybe it's just on the two sides. And so the very first thing that you do is, like, they show a graphic of these cute little robots, like, falling into the controller on the screen. And then you tilt it left and right, and you can feel them moving from one side to the other. Because it's just, you know, it's just adjusting the haptics, right? So it's just tricks with, you know, haptic engines or whatever. Um, but they do really clever things. So when the little robot's running around, you anytime, anytime anything that your avatar in the game does something, the noise comes out of the controller. So like you hear its footsteps and the sound of its footsteps change depending on if you're walking on glass or sand or grass or whatever. And they literally give you a little of each leg as it hits the ground in the controller. Like it's it's completely like it's it's a tech demo. So they're like showing off, but there was just like a little like. Oh, I love this robot now. This I love this robot, and I identify with this robot because I can hear it walking around on the sand right now, and I'm hearing the little crunch of its baby little feet, and I'm feeling it. And then, aww. All right, now I have to get a PS5, even though <laughs> even though it 100% looks like a space helmet. Fine, I'm gonna get one. I want to bring this up. The Xbox and PS5 are gonna kick off a TV upgrade cycle. It seems very obvious. That's gonna be a mess. I'm just telling you right now, it's gonna be a mess. Like. All those fun TVs, like the OLEDs, Dolby Visions, most of them won't support these consoles at their highest settings with variable refresh rate, with 120 hertz. It's a mess. Like, just the HDMI standard, like, all that stuff. We should just do a whole episode. Let's just bring Welch on the show. Yeah. And maybe Tom, too. But the TV upgrade cycle that's about to happen is going to be very confusing. And so there's, like, one Sony TV that will do it. There's a Vizio TV. Vizio always is, like, at the head of the curve. It was HDMI 2.1 and variable refresh. Not all the ports on all these TVs will support the consoles. So like you're, you're going to buy a new TV that supports 2.1 and then plug it in the right port, which some like a lot of people listening to this are like, yeah, that's pretty normal. But just imagine like the regular PS5 customer buying their PS5 and being like, why doesn't it work? And because they plugged in the wrong port in their TV. It's going to be a mess. I'm just calling it out. I'm going to have watch back. We're just going to do an hour long in HDMI standards. It's going to be great. That'll be the most popular broadcast episode ever. The last thing I want to call out as because as always, we've gone over our self-imposed deadline that nobody but me cares about. Uh, <laughs> Monica wrote this incredible story about a 24 year old who is tracking every broken McDonald's ice cream machine in the United States. Hero. It's just incredible. It's just, it's just one of those like weird, wacky internet stories that blew up. She saw it. Just go read it. It made me happy. It's a very confusing time. Read about the guy who's obsessed with broken ice cream machines. It is very upsetting when you walk to a McDonald's that's near your apartment, let's say, and their machine oh is broken. It is upsetting. So I appreciate this person. I've, but isn't like the broken ice cream machine like just like a well-standing cultural phenomenon? Yeah, it's just weird though. Like, why are they always broken? I don't have an answer. 
I thought it's just like they don't want to use it. I don't know. Yeah, the, the ice cream is just there to lure you into the French fries. That's where the money is. <laughs> right, yeah. Ugh. But go read that story. Monica did a great job. I wanted to call it out. Okay, last thing. Absolutely last thing. We are finalists for a Discover Podcast Award. There's a link in the show notes. Just go Just go vote for us. We like winning awards. It makes us, makes us feel good. All right. You can tweet at us. Ashley is at Ashley R. Carmen. Addie is at the Dextriarchy. Dieter's at Backlon. I'm at Reckless. Dieter, you got a Tuesday show coming up, it seems like. Uh, we have one more Tuesday show coming, uh, and then we're going to take a pause. And that Tuesday show is going to be a different kind of director's cut of reviews. We're going to do the the reviews that happen at iFixit. They Ooh. review stuff in a certain way, and we're going to talk to them about how they do their takedown takedowns. They're, we're going to talk to them about how they do their teardowns. I suspect they're going to want to talk about right to repair a little bit and, uh, you know, see what's up. That's it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ash. Thanks. Thanks to Addie for, for talking about Congress with me. <laughs> Thank you. Someone has to do it, and Addie always does it. Uh, great. Uh, we'll be back next week. Talk to you then. Rock and roll. Vote. <laughs>